Luke chapter 1, let's begin reading at verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Lord, thank you for your presence in this house today. Now I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches. I pray special blessing upon them. Lord, I also want to particularly lift up my brother Arthur to you today as he is beginning these treatments, has already started them and is going through them. Be with him, O Lord. And we are thankful for what medical science can do, but at the end of the day, Lord, you are the great physician, and our hope is in you. So I'm asking for divine help and healing for him. And I lift up our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you, and I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. And I ask that you will draw them back to a place of repentance, that not one of them will be lost. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Access to the temple was blocked in the mid-morning hours by about 50 priests milling around the front entrance. It was time to cast lots to determine who would have the honor of entering into the most holy place to offer incense at the altar, and the priests were eager to hear who had been chosen. Five times a year, every priest left home to serve for a week at the temple in Jerusalem. Three of those weeks were for the three major Jewish festivals of Passover, Shavuot, or weeks, and Tabernacles when all the priestly divisions were called to service as religious visitors swelled Jerusalem's population by several hundred thousand people. In addition, each priestly division also served two one-week-long periods during the year when they carried out the daily temple sacrifices and services. Assigning the service by lot ensured that a priest had at least one opportunity in his lifetime to enter the temple and burn incense. Once a priest had been chosen to perform that special service, he was no longer, no longer eligible to do so again. With approximately 18,000 priests living in Judea at the time, and with special services being performed twice a day, one in the morning and one in the evening, it would take almost 25 years for each priest to get a turn. Since priests only served for 20 years, from the age of 30 to 50, 
there was a good chance that some priests would never be afforded the privilege. So being chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense was a once-in-a-lifetime highlight in the career of every priest. On this particular day, the lot fell to one of the older men of the group, a godly country priest named Zacharias. When his name was called, Zacharias went into the vestment room and put on the robes the priests wore when they went into the holy place in the temple. Mentally rehearsing what he needed to do when he got into the holy place, he walked through the temple courtyards, passing through the growing crowds of people who were gathering for the evening prayer. With palms sweating, he slowly walked up the stairs leading into the holy place. As he entered beyond the veil, Zacharias saw the gold-plated walls of the cavernous room lit by the candles on the golden menorah to his left. On the right was the table on which were placed the 12 loaves of showbread. Ahead of him, right in front of the curtain guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies, which the high priest only entered and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, but there was the golden altar. With heart pounding, he walked slowly to the altar carrying a golden bowl from which he extracted the incense to lay on the burning coals. As the exotic fragrance filled the chamber, Zacharias bowed in worship and began to pray. It's hard to know exactly what Zacharias prayed. Undoubtedly, he prayed for the salvation of God's people who were under the brutal yoke of Roman oppression, waiting for the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to send a deliverer and to come and save his people. In addition to the prescribed prayers for the nation, Zacharias had a personal request. For decades, he and his wife Elizabeth had desired a child. With advancing years, they knew it was impossible for that to happen in the natural. But after all, he was praying to God, the almighty sovereign creator of the entire universe. With God, all things are possible And so Zacharias prayed for a son. As Zacharias, whose name means Jehovah remembers, was concluding his prayer, he looked up and to his right saw an angelic form. The first words out of the mouth of the the heavenly messenger were, fear not. It shouldn't surprise us this would be his first words. It had been 400 years since the last prophetic proclamation had been made to the nation of Israel. During that time, the heavens were silent. There were no dreams and visions of spiritual significance, and there certainly were no angelic visitations. The sight of an angel would cause most of us to tremble under the best of circumstances, but especially in light of the prolonged lack of divine revelations. Beyond the oblivious, however, the fear not was also a message of comfort and encouragement, for God was once again making himself known to his people. This angelic visitation was the beginning of a season of preparation, a time of getting things ready for the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. When I think of Advent as the season of preparation, I think of the miraculous announcement to Zacharias about the birth of the son we know as John the baptizer, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the one who would prepare the way for Messiah's arrival. In addition, 
in thinking about preparation, I think about the amount of time Zacharias and Elizabeth waited. They were advanced in years, still without any children. For Elizabeth especially, this was great embarrassment and shame and disgrace. But all the while this couple was going through the pain of childlessness, God was preparing the way for a marvelous miracle. Their difficulty was a season of preparation for God's miracle life to burst forth. John was born and his life wasn't an easy one. Remember, he lived in the desert. He was ridiculed and mocked and persecuted. He died an untimely death, beheaded by a wicked ruler as a result of an oath made in a drunken stupor. But the ministry of John the baptizer was also a season of preparation, which then ushered in the earthly ministry of Jesus. When I think about the 400 silent years being a season of preparation for Israel, when I think about the waiting of Zacharias and Elizabeth being a season of preparation, when I think about the life and ministry of John the baptizer being a season of preparation, I begin to see a pattern of how God seems to work most of the time. To the natural mind and the physical eye, it looks like nothing's happening. Anything that is happening looks bad, really bad. But all the things that look negative on the outside is God working through a season of preparation for something truly wondrous to happen. Now think with me for a moment about some of the Bible stories you know of how God works. Here's a young man named Joseph. Anybody remember Joseph? Joseph is falsely accused and thrown in prison. He languished there for 13 years. It looked like his grand dreams had died. It looked like his promising career was over before it ever got off the ground. But when you get to the end of the story, you realize those 13 years were nothing more than a season in which God was preparing him for his role as prime minister in Egypt and the one who would bring help and rescue to his people from famine. Think about Moses. His temper and his overzealousness have gotten him into big time trouble. He killed an Egyptian and had to run for his life. His picture was on wanted posters plastered throughout the country. For 40 years, he was away from the palace where he grew up. He was in obscurity, tending the sheep of his father-in-law on the backside of the desert. The once proud son of Pharaoh's daughter was now a sunburned, weathered, stuttering sheep herder. To the natural eye, it seemed like all the dreams of grandeur had been smashed on the rocks of harsh reality. But God wasn't finished with Moses. Those 40 years in the desert were nothing more than a season of preparation so God could use him to deliver an entire nation from the bondage of Egypt. Think about David. When the prophet Samuel told his father Jesse to call all his sons together, David was so obscure they completely forgot about him. They didn't remember him until the Lord rejected every one of his brothers, and only when Samuel specifically asked if there were any other brothers did they think about him. David was out in the pasture tending the family flock when a messenger arrived out of breath to relieve him so he could return to the house. When the prophet anointed him with oil and proclaimed him to be the next king over Israel, you would think things would start popping and happening. I mean, after all, David is the new king and things are going to be different now. 
But do you remember what David did after he was anointed king? He returned to the pasture. He went back to the job of the lowest servant. But when you get to the end of the story, you discover that his time in the field with the sheep was nothing more than a season of preparation. Even the time he spent running from King Saul, it was a season of preparation. God was getting him ready to be the greatest leader the nation of Israel has ever known. Years later, looking back on his life, he reflects on where he's been and remembers what he's been through. He remembers all the ways God has helped him and worked in his life and prepared him and blessed him. He picks up his harp and he begins to strum it softly. And as the words and melody rise out of his spirit, he begins to sing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He goes on and talks about even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. His mercy, we just sang it, is running after me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Think about it. All the adversities, all the shattered dreams and broken pieces and wounded places, they were all part of a season of preparation, a time when God was getting ready to reach down and do something so miraculous that onlookers were left speechless, filled with awe and amazement. And this brings me back to Zacharias. You thought maybe I forgot about him, but here we are back at Zacharias. He and his wife Elizabeth were advanced in years and childless. But the Bible says in verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. See, they didn't let their disappointments keep them from walking righteously. I think maybe I need to back up and say that again. They didn't let their disappointments keep them from walking righteously. They didn't, they didn't let their lack keep them from living in agreement with God's word. They didn't let their hurt keep them from being in their place of service. This couple had something the Lord wants to build into each and every one of us today. It's what kept them moving forward when it would have been so easy to turn back. It's what kept them holding on when it would have been so easy to give up. What they had was hope. Hope that somehow in the midst of their trouble, God could and would turn it around. Hope that somehow, regardless of how it looked on the outside, God had not forgotten about them. And out of the dusty ashes, he was able to raise up something to the praise of his glory. You see, the reason people lose heart is because they lose hope. The reason people give up is because they lose hope. The reason the suicide rate increases, especially among young people, is because they've lost hope. As long as hope is alive, you can keep pressing on. As long as hope is alive, you can ignore the criticism. As long as hope is alive, you can get up and face another day. You know, we talk a lot about the faith of the Old Testament man named Job. He is held up as a model of faith in the midst of tough times. But what a lot of people miss is the undying hope of this man, Job. In chapter 14, verse 14 of the book that bears his name, he says, if a man dies, will he live again? 
Watch this. He says, all the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Do you see what's happening here? Job is down. He's struggling, but he hasn't lost his hope. He's waiting, he's looking, he's expecting his change to come. It may come on this earth, it may come when he leaves this earth and enters the eternal presence of the Lord, but he keeps his hope that change is coming. It's not gonna always be exactly the way it is right now. See, the reason, the reason many of us don't have any more of our prayers answered than we do is not because we don't believe God can do it, it isn't because we don't believe God has done it before. But it's just because we don't see God doing it this time for us. We've listened to the critics and the cynics. We've heard the negative reports. We've been told by our spiritual adversary how unworthy we are and how difficult the project is. We've looked at all the possibilities and reasoned it out that it's just the way things are and we're not going to change them. In the process, we've learned to make the best we can of the negative. We've learned how to survive with the negative. We've learned how to exist, even though we don't really want things to be the way they are, but we haven't dared hope they could be any better. As a result of our lack of hope, our faith wanes. Our faith is weak. We have, we have trouble believing God for the mighty things he has promised. We have trouble believing the word of the Lord that is written when we read it. We have trouble believing the word of the Lord the pastor preaches. And we reason in our own minds that this word is probably good for somebody, but our situation is too far gone. Some of you sitting there right now going, yeah, that's what I was thinking. What we need is an infusion of hope. When our hope gets ignited and we begin to hope for more than we ever dreamed, then we begin to see the possibilities the Lord has for us. Then we go to the Word of God and find what God has to say about His ability. And our hope then gets linked with God's promise in His Word. Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. When hope is increased and God's Word comes alive, then faith is increased. And where faith is, God responds and that's when the the victory comes. If you're struggling today, you need to understand your struggle is not the end. Instead, it's a season of preparation for the next great event. When you're in the season of preparation, don't lose your hope. Stay true. Stay tough. Stay focused. Stay faithful. Stay committed. Regardless of the adversity that comes your way, don't Lose your hope. See, I came to this pulpit today with a message from the Lord for somebody who has ears to hear and receive it. What you're in right now is not the end. It's a season. And seasons change. It's a season. It's a season. It's a time of preparation. God has something wonderful just around the corner for you, so don't lose your hope before you turn the corner. You know, so, what I found is that sometimes we read the stories in the Bible about the way God worked and the way God helped various people, and we forget the same God who worked and helped all those people in the Bible, he's the same God. And he's our God too. 
That's what the Lord wants to say to somebody today. He wants to say, I am the Lord, your God. I'm not just the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm not just the God who formed the first man from the dust of the ground. I'm not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. I'm not just the God of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I'm not just the God of the Exodus, not just the God of the judges. I'm not just the God of the kings. I'm not just the God of the prophets. I'm not just the God of the apostles. I'm not just the God of the early church. I'm not just the God of the great awakening. I'm not just the God of the Pentecostal revival. I'm not just the God of the charismatic renewal. I'm not just the God of the people who leave this church, who lead this church, but I am the Lord, your God. Why don't you just tap yourself on the shoulder and say, he's talking about my God. You may be under fire right now. You may not see any way out, but don't lose your hope. The Lord would say, because I'm getting ready to break in upon you in a new and dynamic way. I'm getting ready to demonstrate my might and my glory in a way you haven't dreamed possible because I am a God of suddenly moments. You're in a season of preparation right now, but I am the Lord, your God, and I'm getting ready to change your season. When you bail out on God, you don't stay in it long enough for him to change your season. The moment you give up on him, it's over. But you hang on to God, and God says, I'll hang on to you, and I'll turn things around for you. I'll make a way where there is no way. If it need be, I'll build a a river in a desert. I, I don't know why we think everything has to run its natural course. See, when God is in the midst of things, he's the master of it all. He's the one who sets the boundaries. He's the one who determines the timetable. See... See, here we have Zacharias, hoping, praying, continuing to live righteously, even though it seems nothing is happening. He's gotten comfortable with the way things are, even though they aren't exactly the way he wants them to be. He's in the temple. He's from the Abijah family of priests. He's been selected by Lot to perform the ministry of burning incense in the evening sacrifice. It's a once-in-a-lifetime honor. But even while he's performing this sacred duty, he has a prayer for a child on his lips. Suddenly the angel appears to him. The promise is made not just for a son, but for a son with a divine purpose. But it seems like the timing is all wrong. I mean, did did you notice that? See, both he and his wife are past the time of conceiving and bearing children. And the, the response of Zacharias isn't rude, but it's very human. Angel says, your your wife's gonna conceive, you're gonna have a child. Surely you got the wrong guy. You you were probably supposed to have been here this morning when that younger guy was in here. Surely you have the wrong time. Now, now, notice this. The response of Zacharias in the Bible reads like a question. But in reality, it isn't a question. It's an expression of doubt. And I love the response of the angel in verse 19 and 20. He says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I mean, you obviously don't know who I am. I am Gabriel. I I stand in God's presence. I deliver God's word. Don't you understand? God's word is true, and it will be fulfilled. 
And just so you know I'm telling you the truth, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, the text explicitly says the sign given to Zacharias was his inability to speak. Implied in the passage from here and the rest of the story is that he was also unable to hear. Because later on, when, he, when John is born, the Bible says they make signs to him to ask him what the name of the boy would be. So there's an implication that it's not just an inability to speak, but an inability to hear. That's right. Yeah. I want to suggest to you that losing the ability to hear and speak wasn't a punishment so much as it was a protection. The last thing this priest heard was the promise of God. For nine months, all he kept hearing in his mind's ear was the promise of God. And every time he tried to speak, he was reminded of the wonderful promise of God. Watch this. Somebody, somebody needs to grab this. There was no way he could nullify the promise of God by his words of unbelief. There was no way he could derail the miracle by his negative, doubting speech. The sign that the miracle was on the way was a mute priest. The sign that God was no longer silent was a mute priest. The sign that the season was changing and God was doing something new was a mute priest. When Zacharias came out of the temple, his inability to speak rendered him unable to deliver the customary blessing over the people. And the Bible says the people realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them. And the people were amazed because something had shifted. See, this wasn't the way things normally happened in church. But the God who had been silent for 400 years had showed up at an unexpected time in an unexpected way and the only testimony they had to the miracle of God's presence was a mute priest. And I want you to understand something. I've, I've, this is another one. I wish I could just grab somebody's hand and look you right in the eye. The unbelief of Zacharias didn't nullify the promise of God. God had made a promise. He had declared his word, and he was not about to let the unbelieving, negative words of an unbelieving priest stand in the way of bringing his promise to pass. Let that sink in. When God makes a promise, nothing can stand in its way. Zacharias wasn't sure he was the right man. He wasn't sure this was the right time. But God's time doesn't work according to the way we understand to be the natural order. You wouldn't think God would choose the height of the Roman Empire as the time to bring his Messiah into the world. But that's exactly what God did. It was God's perfect time according to his perfect will. During the Advent season, Galatians 4 
verses four and five keep ringing in my spirit every year. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What a powerful statement. In the fullness of time. It didn't look like the right time for God to change the season. It looked like it ought to be the season of preparation still. But God's timetable said, no, now is the time. It is not according to the natural order of things. In fact, that's what this particular wording means in the original. It's not according to the natural course of events as summer follows spring and autumn follows summer, but it's an interruption of the natural order. It isn't according to the way you think it should happen, but hope is fulfilled. The fullness of time is here. I'm interrupting the normal course and I'm changing the season. So no longer is it a season of preparation, but it's the season of the miraculous flow of my glory upon this earth. And that's what I believe the Lord is saying to someone listening to this message today with faith and hope in your heart. You've been in a season when everything seemed to be going wrong. You've been in a season where everything seemed to be negative. You thought it was just a dark place with no end and no purpose, but you didn't realize it is a season of preparation. And maybe you're not even sure what it is you've been preparing for, but you've just had a sense that something was stirring and you've been restless in your spirit. I'm preaching to somebody right now. I'm telling you, you're in a season of preparation, but the Lord, your God, is getting ready to change your season. So let hope rise in your heart today. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Resurrect the dream the Lord has placed in your spirit. I'm almost done. In this season of preparation in which you've been, God's been stripping you. He stripped you of pride. He stripped you of self-reliance until you now know if anything good is going to come, it's going to require God's miraculous power. Now that you've been through the season of preparation, the Lord wants you to know he has a coat of glory he's getting ready to apply to your life. You may... You may think you know what his word is going to look like in your life when he changes your season. But I'm here to tell you when he gets through with the application of his glory on your life, it's going to be so much greater and more beautiful than anything you've ever dreamed possible. You're going to have to stand back in awe and amazement at the grace of God that's been extended to you. I'm here to declare to someone, maybe you've been in a season of failure the Lord is getting ready to change your season to a season of success. Maybe it's been illness. He's changing it to health. Maybe it's been lack. It's changing to plenty. Instead of discord, it's changing to unity. Hear me, somebody. It's changing to unity. Instead of defeat, it's changing to victory. Instead of confusion, it's changing to confidence. Instead of disappointment, it's changing to fulfillment and purpose. Instead of brokenness, it's changing to wholeness. Instead of sorrow, it's changing to joy. Instead of grief, it's changing to gladness. Instead of mourning, it's changing to rejoicing. The Lord is turning it around. The Lord is changing your season. I wish somebody would give praise to the Lord. Praise him for his promise. Praise him even before you see the outcome. Come into agreement with his word by your praise.
I'm persuaded to believe while I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to somebody's heart. Faith has begun to rise. Faith to believe the promise of God for a new season. Faith to believe that God who has done it before can and will do it again. Does anybody believe that God will do it again? Not just that he can do it, but he will do it again. If that's you, I want to pray with you. I want to unite my faith with yours. I want to agree in prayer. And with you, begin to expect the coming of Christ in this season to put you into your new season of promise. Stand with me, please.